This is Matt Pegas. And this is episode, I'm, I'm going to say 17, Matt. You're right. I think that's right. Yep, you're this right. This is episode 17 with uh, Caleb Cowdell. Did, did we pronounce the last name right? It's Caudell. 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 All right. Yeah, close enough, uh, yeah. With, uh, with Caleb, who is an excellent novelist. We just read his novel, The Neighbor which uh, is kind of from a sort of um, Midwestern Gothic perspective and style, I would say, but we'll, we'll get into that more later. And um, Caleb, it, uh, you know, it seems you kind of came onto the scene around April 2020, uh, as, as did many of us when we found more <laughs> free time in yeah, our lives, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, started a really cool blog, middleamericanlit.wordpress.com. Uh, that, that again is middleamericanlit.wordpress.com. And uh, you started off, I think, with a, a blog that was a review, or not maybe started, one of your first blogs was a review of Delicious Tacos's novel, Finally, yeah. some good news, which mm-hmm. you know is another example of kind of this internet fiction, outsider fiction lit that we uh, that our mission kind of is to profile right. at New Right. Right. And uh, <laughs> it seems about a year later, maybe um, you know, just correct me if I have the timeline wrong, but I think you published um, the Neighbor in June of 2021. Yeah, May, I believe, of 2021. Yeah, getting close to a year now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, you started the blog, got a novel out really quickly, and a very good one, I must say. And, um, yeah, and you're here now. I am here uh, now, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, let um, take it away, Caleb. Sure, yeah. uh, Yeah, I started that blog... uh, April 2020, although at the time I was considered an essential worker and was working full time. Oh, wow. uh, I believe I was, uh, I'd, I'd bounce around from job to job, but at the time I was in north central Indiana working in a Walmart distribution center in the freezer section where temperatures were about negative 30. And wow. I would go in at four in the morning and work until about two or three. And I was living with a woman, it's an ex now, my girlfriend at the time, a super small town, upland Indiana, completely flat, hometown of James Dean. It's a nice area. There are things I like a lot about it. But uh, 
even though I worked quite a bit, I still about the only other thing I did was write. And I was, mm -hmm. I, I, I tend to split up my writing between nonfiction and fiction. I devote about equal time to both, although it can vary. But yeah, I'd, I'd like to work on the blog. And then I had this novel going. When I was really in the, in the groove with the novel, I was writing about uh, two hours a day. I was trying to get a couple thousand words, roughly a thousand words per hour uh, to get that initial draft done. And it was a, a pretty smooth process. So I could, once the initial con once I figured out that initial concept, uh, it all flowed very smoothly. And I'd say it probably took me maybe about six months to, to get the first draft done with some breaks here and there. And then about another six months to go through the edits and work with my publisher and go back and forth on that. A thousand per hour is really good, I have to say. I think um, I and, and Matt, to an extent, wrote our novels during a similar time period. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, I was shooting for like a thousand a day. Like if I clocked a thousand words in a day, I yeah. was like, well, that's that's good progress there. Yeah, but, it, it, uh, it depends on the, the total amount of time you have, your energy levels, what's going on around you, how many distractions you're dealing with. The reason I'd like to try to shoot for about a thousand an hour is because that that's about all the time I could really guarantee myself. Sometimes I would have more time and then I right. would go for more or spend some time editing. But I knew that I at, at worst, I could only get that much time in. And yeah. so that, that, that was my bar. And it, that's also taking into consideration that I'm going to go back, I'm going to edit. I didn't, I don't spend, a, I don't really edit much as I write, at least initially. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's an interesting place to start the conversation in terms of craft. It's something I sometimes wish we talked about more on this podcast. Um, Caleb, I'm curious, are you you a morning writer? Are you a before work guy, after work guy? I mean, I know some some people find these questions kind of banal, but I think I, as a writer, always find it interesting to hear what other people do, and I think probably some of our listeners do too. So, yeah, what's your uh, routine like? Because it sounds yeah. like it's working. Yeah, no, I, and, and I'm interested in this as well. I, I don't consider it banal at all. I mean, it's it, it's at the heart of things. Without right. some kind of routine or structure, yeah, none of this would even come to fruition. Totally. But uh, ideally, and it can vary because I, I work quite a bit and I have other things going on, but uh, if I can clear away distractions, I like to write in the morning. I like to write about an hour after waking up. It's not first thing. I need to clear the cobwebs. I've got to rev my engines up a little bit. Uh, I like to have a cup of coffee, maybe take a walk, uh, play with the cats a little bit, mm -hmm. and maybe read a little bit. I don't, I don't want to go too far into the weeds with someone else's material, but maybe even read a couple of poems or something. I'm a big fan of Wallace Stevens. Right. I like uh, Fernando Pessoa. There's bits here and there. Like the, This is a, maybe a little bit of a tangent, but like That's The okay. Book of Disquiet by Fernando Pessoa is a great book to pick up because it's uh, these disconnected, fragmentary reflections and observations. So it's nice to pick up something like that and just read a paragraph or two. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm going to write that down. I, I, I actually remember Pessoa being on one of my college-lit syllabi, but oh, you, uh, I have to admit yeah. I, I didn't crack the book. So. Oh, I highly recommend him. Yeah, if you haven't uh, checked him out yet, you really should. He is a fantastic writer, really beautiful language, super evocative. Very melancholic. I mean, maybe it's almost an indulgence in a way because I tend towards the melancholic and it, it feeds that. But 
Yeah, yeah it's, it's really pretty stuff. That's an interesting thought to me. I haven't read poetry in years, but based on what you're saying now, it's something I'm going to think about. Because, I, yeah, my routine is similar. I, I um, try and write daily, about, you know, about an hour, half hour to an hour after waking up. Uh, my, my move is because I used to grab my phone right, you know, right when I woke up. Yeah. I'm trying to stop that. So yeah. replace it with a book. So right. I do read. That's my main thing I do before writing. But um, mm-hmm. the type of reading that I think probably lends itself best to sort of a reading and preparation for writing, um, it would make sense to me that poetry would be beneficial with regard to that because it sets, it kind of get yeah, it turns, you know, it clears the cobwebs a bit. It gets you yeah. thinking imagistically. Um, yes. As opposed well, to delving into like a narrative or nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and apart from that, I don't read much poetry and I don't really care for it most of the time, but I find it useful in that context of stimulating me a little bit because you, yeah, you, I, I wouldn't want to spend an hour or two hours reading poetry. I think that would get extremely tedious for me, but just a one or two poems and that, that, that sparks this freer association. I think it aids the, the creative process, especially I mean, the mind I think is more inclined towards that in the morning anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I find, I that find too. it's, better to write in the morning just because your mind is more uncluttered like when i try at the end of the day Mm -hmm. so much has happened so much has like you know work is on my mind other things are on my mind i'm not in that creative space but when you wake up yeah it's like you know you have that zone Mm -hmm. yeah and, and it's crucial to not reach for your phone unless i suppose if you're a journalist or you're a topical writer maybe you need to be updating yourself that consistently on what's going on or you're writing on a topic that's unfolding uh, at, at, a, at a daily rate or something but otherwise if you're doing something if you're doing fiction if you're, you're pulling material from down deeper within yourself or from somewhere else in the universe i think it's pretty counterproductive to fill your head with a, a bunch of uh, topical nonsense yeah Absolutely. i mean you, you've you've said this caleb and, and dan and i both too you know we work full time so like finding that hour before work uh, has really been the sweet spot for me. And, you know, I've tried, I still do sometimes right after work. I've even written during my lunch break, but man, it's, yeah, it's that morning time that is, right. that I find to be essential. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, and I'll, I'll squeeze it in later too, if I can, but you, you can tell the difference. Things are fuzzier. Yeah. You're slower. It, yeah, I, like not... I can edit later in the day. Yeah. Editing the, is a yeah. different story. Right. But that, you know, those, you know, thousand, two thousand words you're talking about, um, you know, of pure creative energy, that is by far best in the morning. Um, yeah, totally. Maybe almost, for everyone. It sounds like for us three, at least. <laughs> yeah, it's like a yeah. blitzkrieg kind of thing. You, and especially, yeah, if, if you're not a full time writer, if you're not paid to write, you don't have eight to ten hours a day to lounge around, take walks, write for a while, take a break, go back to it. You, you've got to condense it. You've got to concentrate it. You've got to find something that that allows you to very efficiently produce material. Yeah. Yeah. And that's impressive to, you know, to get it down to an hour and just like have an hour of solid productivity right. in an already productive day. Right. That is like, oh, it feels I amazing. mean, frankly, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's why I think very few, there are very few novelists, very few good novelists because most people just don't have the time. Right, and the they people don't have, who do have the time don't you know have anything else don't to have do. This, and yeah, don't have don't the structure. Have, uh, yeah, no, lives yeah. to inform. And, the and it's almost uh, it's it, not just there's not only the time issue. There's uh, perhaps this is a little bit grandiose or self-aggrandizing or something, but uh, the, the courage of focus. Uh, like mm-hmm. it's it's not technically it's not that hard to find an hour. 
even if you're very busy, you, you can carve that time out, but then you have to commit to grappling with your own mind. And Absolutely. one of the things about writing, and that sometimes the way people talk about this, it gets a little inflated or something, but you are face to face with the limits of your own intelligence right there. Yeah. yeah. And, and sometimes that, that's something you, you don't really feel up for. And I'm not gonna try to act like it's a, a daily torture or anything, but you do have to renew that effort over and yeah. over again. I mean, yeah. it sounds trite, but uh, you can't be afraid to fail. You, <laughs> yeah, uh, right, yeah. You have to, like, good writing isn't guarded writing. It's not like I'm trying to be great writing. Yeah. It's the writing you do that's, you know, the honest writing. And the sure. honest writing is the writing that you do kind of, like, off the cuff. That you yeah. do, you just find that rhythm and you get into it. And then... Mm -hmm. Like when I was writing my novel, it didn't really get good until I found the main character's voice. Okay. And then when you find the main character, as you seem to have in The Neighbor, there's a very distinct, even though it's in the third person, there's a very distinct kind of character voice for Jesse. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's, you know, once you find that voice, you're good to go. You're off yeah. the races. Yeah, and you don't know where that's going to be necessarily right off the bat. And it can get a little discouraging, but you have to be willing... To push through that you have to be willing to look at certain inadequacies and find a way around them or find ways of incorporating them or making them work for you do you yeah. have any um, good readers uh for you like editors yes who, uh... uh one of the th i have such a conflicted relationship with twitter as i'm sure many people <laughs> do and yeah. that's that's probably uh, a, a commonplace but I have found through Twitter uh, several people that have been extremely helpful in the feedback that they've offered. Uh, not just with the novel, but nonfiction stuff, short, short stories. I have a couple of people in my real life that I, I send material to. Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that because I, I don't pay anyone to, yeah. as of now, I don't pay anyone to edit my work. I don't pay for anyone's opinion on my work. I, there are a few people that I'm confident in asking, and I would never expect it either. And I would be totally fine with n no one having the time to do it, especially if I'm not paying them. But people, there are people out there who have devoted at least part of their free time to giving their perspective on things and helping me out with that. Yeah, awesome. no, there's a there's a good economy, so to speak, of people doing that on Twitter, and it's definitely part of what we're trying to do on the podcast is you know give feedback and and get people help you know people get their work out there. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I'm actually curious. Sorry, Dan. You oh no, no, <laughs> Oh, I'm just curious. Uh, you know, for some of our readers might be interested. I'm in, a bit interested. Uh, how did you hook up with uh, Bonfire Books, and kind of what is Bonfire Books? It seems like a pretty good you know company in general but i'm just yeah yeah no, they're good guys they're stand-up guys i've uh, greatly enjoyed working with them they are the perfect combination i think uh for me is uh someone or like a company or whatever that's both responsive and also that is that will hang back that won't put, yeah. yeah that won't put pressure on me but also is will work with me and it is communicative, and and I know that's that that almost plays into certain flaws that I have, where I'm, I'm pretty selfish in that way. Where if I want some if I want someone's attention, I want it quickly. But then if I don't want to be bothered, I don't want to be bothered. So 
they 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 work with me on that, and uh, it's nice. They're they're small scale. Uh, they they only they only have a few releases at this point, but that works really well for me. One of the things I don't like about publishing, I guess, is that uh, the time between like submitting a work and then having it accepted and then oh, having yeah. it published is like you you're talking years uh, down yeah. the line, yeah. and the smaller you go. I guess because I'm not so concerned about hitting it big or making a name for myself necessarily, I want a physical copy of what I'm doing to be available in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And the fewer projects they have, and I, I hope this also doesn't sound like I'm selling them short or like they don't have enough going on, but it's just nice that they can devote quite a bit of their energy and attention to me. And so yeah. the time from agreeing to put out the book to putting it out was breakneck compared to most like the pace of that was just so fast and i really appreciate that because i'm not very patient really when it comes down to things oh like yeah that. and and the, the 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 world moves so fast now fiction i think should be a little bit of a step back from the the rush of the of the world and of social media but nevertheless it's the world we're living in moves at such a speed that like i mean can you imagine like you know, everything changes so fast. So yeah, that that year long gap between finishing something and getting it published, it's uh, yeah. You know, I, I did do that with my book, and it was fine. Um, but whatever I publish in the future, you know, I'm going to circumvent that because it just isn't fresh anymore. Yeah, and I, I think especially for a debut, that was nice. I mean, maybe if you've already got two or three, you've got a, a catalog or something, and you, you're working on even longer range projects, maybe you can afford to take that time. But I had reached a point, I had been writing for long enough and putting out things digitally that I, I wanted a physical copy yeah. and I wanted to have it out in a relatively short amount of time. And yeah, and the, and the way that I found Bonfire was that I think, as I recall, it's slightly hazy, but I think at some point in the fall of 2021, I had pretty much finished a first draft, maybe even a second draft, done some edits on the novel, and I tweeted that hey, I've got a book. Does anyone want to work with me? Does anyone want to put it out? And they got a hold of me. And oh, wow. They, they were already familiar. They had been reading my blog. It was mm -hmm. through the blog that they were made aware of me and were interested enough in putting out the book. Awesome. Nice. They are an Australian company, I think? Yes, or... they are Australian. Uh, one, of them, one of them, I believe, is Australian. The other is American and was either born in Indiana or spent time, lived in Indiana for a while. We, we shared certain Indiana references, I know, in talking about things like that. Uh, but I, yeah, they are based in Australia. Interestingly, I had a former professor because um, my novel, Nutcranker, is a little edgy. <laughs> and um, as such, it's probably a little difficult to publish in the mainstream publishing industry. And this former professor recommended reaching out to uh, British publishers and British agents, saying yeah. that they are a little more, um, you know, tolerant of things that are, um, you know, uh, unwoke, shall we say, or sure. what have you. Yeah. And Australia, I, I wonder if, I mean, not that your material is, and we'll, we'll get into the novel shortly, but uh, not that it is especially, um, you know, uh, dissident in, in any way, 
but mm-hmm. um, you don't see, and you, I mean, this is something we'll get into. You don't see a lot of novels that are, you know, written from the perspective that you write from. So right. it maybe is something that you know Australians or you know uh, Brits are more uh, like, hey, I wonder what's going on in the U.S. What's going on with these these people? <laughs> yeah, no, I, there might be that curiosity. Yeah, the, there might be people who are willing to take a chance on material that doesn't quite fit into the these that doesn't touch on more mainstream themes or what's considered palatable. I don't know. I, they're probably, I'm sure they're American. They're, I know there are American based companies that are also willing to do the same thing. It, it was a, a right place, right time kind of thing for me. Uh, and also, yeah, playing into my maybe a laziness in a way of like me just saying, Hey, who would be interested? And they said they were. And of course they turned out to be great to work with. I mean, I wouldn't just go with anything, but uh, that was the, the start of it. Yeah, I, I just haven't really tried to. I just haven't been willing to wait for uh, most like bigger American companies. I don't know. I, I did send some stuff out to other places and didn't hear anything back in a, a time frame that worked for me. So yeah, this no, really I, I well produced novel as well, like mm-hmm. the cover art. The uh, oh, they did a great job. Yeah, I mean, what, what yeah. more? What more could I want? That's the thing. Is like it's completely professional. It it exceeds my standards by my it left to my own devices. Who knows what I would accept? Like I, I don't have my I'm visually and materially. I, I don't consider, I'm not a, a refined person. I'm really not. So I, I think it, like anything that just like a stack of papers would I would probably give the green light on. So that that went way beyond what I would have expected. Makes sense. Um. Yeah, maybe we just jump into it with the uh, you know the novel. And um, one of the things I was wondering is your um, you know your literary inspirations. What um, you know styles influenced uh, the neighbor your novel? Yeah. Um, it bears you know there's a, a sort of um, you know quest that the protagonist Jesse is on after an inciting event. Mm-hmm. And in some respects, it's uh, you know has uh, allusions to uh, you know classical stories like right. the Odyssey. I, I don't know to what extent that was intentional, but it's yeah. very much written in the style of the kind of uh, uh, maybe. And you know, tell me if I'm putting words into uh, your your mouth here, but uh, the Southern Gothic combination yeah. mm-hmm. with um, you know a little bit of the kind of beat patter the uh the on the road um you know style yeah uh not that would not be putting words in my mouth uh the the major influence if there's one if there's a central influence it is southern gothic that william faulkner is is probably at the heart of things and then a little like as a descendant of that uh cormac mccarthy which that's not necessarily southern gothic gothic that's like appalachian and then uh Western, but uh, yeah, those elements are are very strong. Those are major influences. On the road, not as much, a little bit. Uh, I haven't, I wasn't as into Kerouac. I haven't read him since like high school-ish era. All of these references, they they get, they're knocking around in in my head a little bit, but uh, William Faulkner is a big one for sure. Uh, The on the road thing, 
I, I was thinking about it, but not also maybe taking a step back. I'm not all that academic at this point. And so like when you bring up something like the Odyssey, I did have the idea in a vague sense of doing a reverse Odyssey or an inverted Odyssey, but I never intended to be rigorous with the illusions or to, to map. I, I didn't, I don't necessarily like very intricate or puzzle-like works where it's like now you need to be a scholar to uncover yeah. maybe maybe that can be fun i'm not necessarily knocking it but it wasn't my intention so I, I wasn't trying to map every location onto oh this is where odysseus was or this is <laughs> you know I, i'm not i wasn't trying to be that clever or erudite with these things but i did at least in a general sense have the idea of like okay so there's this classical story about a, a hero has been cast out and he needs to make his way home. What if we just flip it on its head? What if uh, someone is running from home? What if the exile is already the, the, the birth at the beginning and he's got to get away? Yeah. No, that's, um, that sounds very on the mark. And with regard to Faulkner, it's interesting. I didn't, you know, I didn't actually think of Faulkner as I was reading this. But as you mentioned it, I remember how wickedly funny some of Faulkner's writing was. And yeah. I do see parallels in, you have some, you know, like really hilarious lines in here. Um, a lot of, like, a lot of the um, the television shows that Amber enjoys, which are yeah. like various reality programming about people who, like, who eat strange things. Like <laughs> right. the woman who eats Vaseline and... Yeah, the, um, right. and the various like fast food concoctions mm -hmm. and the, yeah. uh, the caffeine candies <laughs> and shit. Right. Which... Yeah. The the shock rocks. I think was one. Of, yeah. That's. I, it's all. It, maybe it's fairly lowbrow, but I have a lot of fun uh, riffing on. Yeah. The variations of food products. Uh, yeah. Candies, sodas, and. There is a real point in there. There is something to highlight in that the kind of the the sea of garbage on which we're drifting, all the the, the proliferation of products and things that are that, that make us sick, that provide like these very cheap thrills and calories that, that get us from one day to the next, but are actually poisoning us, mm -hmm. and how accessible they are, and yet how inaccessible, like more fulfilling things happen to be at the same time. But yeah, I, I try to have fun with it. But I, one thing, going back to what you pointed out, uh, the humor of Faulkner is often underrated. That's not often brought up. Like, he is very funny at times. And Cormac McCarthy is a major influence, and he's mostly not funny at all, except for in Sutri, which is a, like a middle period novel, which is uh, not like his other stuff in some ways. I mean, it's very graphic and gritty, but it's also much funnier than it is. Hmm other stuff and that that's a one of the more hidden influences that has been operating on me yeah I, i'd like to for me humor comes from a very sad place i think like the, it it's based on observing something that's actually very painful when you confront it directly and then the only way of working through it is uh, by somehow making it comical or mm -hmm. finding a way to laugh at it so the sadness is the basis or like something very melancholic and thinking like, well, there are all these people who are pretty much buried in trash, but 
and without condemning them or mocking them in a, a completely cruel way, how do we how do we derive some sort of humor or joy out of it? And sometimes the way to do that is through a really frank description. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the only. The only good, not that this is necessarily in the notes I mentioned this, not that this is necessarily a satire, but there there are elements of dramatic irony when you're describing these, you know, wacky snacks that people eat yeah. and these like crazy TV shows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's uh, it's very funny. Yes. And there's, you know, there's a sense that like, yes, to an extent, you know, it's uh, a funny situation. But in order to like really, you know, do this satire in a way that is effective, you have to really care about the people who you're writing yeah. about. You have right. to care about. So like in my novel, my protagonist that I satired, you know, it was someone who, you know, ultimately I'm like, well, it's a very flawed person. But yeah, mm-hmm. I do have empathy. Yeah. And like if you try to satirize something that you you have disdain for, mm-hmm. then it becomes cruel and just kind yeah. of like a Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah, it's flat. There's no depth to it. Uh, there are no other dimensions. And yeah, it, it's a good point. You do need some empathy. And I think empathy is in fairly short supply. And that's a, and also that's not even a, a I don't think of it as a judgmental statement but i i think naturally as human beings we don't have as much empathy as we would like to believe and so some things are probably off limits we probably just can't treat some subjects or look at some people with the empathy we would like to therefore maybe we can't treat them artistically i don't know people have different limits but uh, yeah i think yeah even doing satire you need some you need to be able to relate to it on some level you need to have it needs to be a human connection and for me, maybe it is a limit to my imagination, but I've grown up in the midst of all of these things. I have seen them, these things directly. I have had relationships with these kinds of people. And even though I can be very judgmental and I can be very critical of certain choices that they make, I can still see the humanity underneath that. And that's like, as an example of, if I were to view someone watching garbage television and eating a family-sized bag of Funyuns, I can I can sneer at that and I can say, well, they're making a bad choice and I wouldn't make that choice. Not also, I mean, I do make those kinds of choices <laughs> too. Anyway, but it, normally the way we judge things is a matter of frequency or volume, right? It's not like we never do those things. It's just like, well, I don't do it every day or whatever, something like that where we qualify it. But when I look at somebody who's oh maybe their habit is to watch horrible television every day I can say that's not good for them they should do something else I don't do that but I still see how it's fulfilling it's some sort of surrogate pleasure or it's a source of some sort of fulfillment that isn't they're not it's not getting met somewhere else and I still like I I really that that touches me in a way too where like part of me wants to mock it but part of me wants to uh, just give someone a hug and, or be like, I know exactly why you're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that empathy really comes across in the novel for, you know, not just the protagonist, but for 
you know, I, I don't think you actually mentioned the state it's set in. I yes. we know it's the Midwest. I assumed mm-hmm. it was you know probably Indiana, where mm-hmm. yeah, or you know Ohio or what have you. Yeah. But um, but yeah, no, there's that clear empathy for the region and mm-hmm. the challenges that it faces. And right. I was struck particularly by the last line by the cop, and this mm-hmm. is not really a spoiler. Uh, but he says, um, it's, it's not like it's some tragedy referring mm-hmm. to a specific murder that, mm-hmm. you know, kicks off the, the novel. Right. And though like that murder, you know, you could say it is a tragedy isn't it's, you know, maybe as it is argued in the book in some, to some extent, it's good for the community. It's bad for the community, mm-hmm. but it misses the point. Uh, and intentionally. So this was your intention, I'm sure to say yeah. it's not some tragedy, because the true tragedy is the whole book. Right. It's yes. what happened in the past thirty years to mm-hmm. Middle America. Right. And yeah, I mean, what's you know what's been your experience with that? And yeah. we, uh, you know, maybe have our own. Yeah. No, I, I I grew up in a a small town in Indiana, and when I was born, already we're maybe ten, fifteen years into deindustrialization, and. That some of that, some of the effects of that had not been, were not developed until, it wasn't until even about two, around the year 2000 or so, early 2000s, that most of the factories in my small town and surrounding areas were closed down. But the beginnings of it, I think you trace back to the 70s. And, and going back even farther, I, I find it extremely interesting how going from rapid industrialization the post-war boom to deindustrialization happened within about one or two generations. Yeah, it's 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 a incredibly swift process. I think that gets overlooked a little bit because, especially if you think of like the fifties, you know, post-war boom, prosperity, mass production, mass consumerism. You got the expansion of the middle class from about that like nineteen forty-five, then to nineteen seventy-five. You know, twenty-five thirty-five years. That's a period from expansion to contraction. That's that's from like government policies that support the middle class to policies that counteract all of that. Yeah. And and that's not really enough time for there's no time in that for traditions to arise. That's not time for wisdom to be passed down. That's like suddenly oh, you don't need to be educated to make a decent living to even as an educated person, you will not make a decent living. <laughs> Yeah, and you you bring up an interesting point. I mean, it's now been in decline, so to speak, for as long or I guess longer than it was yes. booming. Right. <laughs> yeah, the boom the, the boom was incredibly rapid, and I, I'm sure it took everyone by surprise. But it's so funny how that brief period of a boom with uh, suburbanization, greater urbanization, all all of that uh, industrial development that is looked back on now as a period of conformity and stasis. But it was a, a time of incredible sweeping change, Absolutely. and it, it, it lasted. It was a blink of an eye. But now, like, be, but what that shows, what that says to me is that things have declined so much in some ways, and that the change has only accelerated, and things have become <clears> so much more chaotic that that period itself now looks like some sort of static paradise. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I think not to get um too political, and I don't even mean this politically. I mean more just in the way that people think about these things and the images that are conveyed uh it's 
maybe it's too simplistic, but if you look at, you know, Trump's 2016 victory, make America great again, whatever, what, what did that mean? Who knows? But I do think, you know, in terms of what the states that he did win, um, and again, I'm really not even trying to make some political argument here. I'm just like kind of spitballing, um, the, the, those Rust Belt states that he did win, you know, it's, it's tempting mm-hmm. to think that what did make America great again mean to those Trump voters? It's harkening back to that time. And, yeah. You know, that, that was part of his promise as well. But right. Hold on, it. we don't even need to comment on. But yeah. Sure. Yeah. No. And I, it, from the generation, my dad's generation to my own, my dad was able to, <clears throat> without a college education, work in a, a, a limestone plant and make very good money. And he had great benefits. He worked hard. It was a hard job. By, by no means was it some, something he just showed up and goofed around on. But it was a hard job, but he was compensated well for it with no special certification. It wasn't a, a lifelong training process. Uh, from that to my own generation where I received much more extensive schooling. And, of course, I made my own choices. I, I don't, I don't want to suggest that. I couldn't have made better choices, but it, it, it just wasn't as simple. It wasn't as direct of a line of just, yeah. oh, yeah, when you, if you go through school and you get a degree, you're going to get a good job. No, I, things have fallen off. Yeah, 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 because you, know, you, can't, you can't get a good job. You can't have a job that supports a family. You know, that's, mm. that's the big difference, is, right. as you said, uh, policies, you know, economic circumstances, even that supported the middle class versus what we have now. Yeah, the, the middle class is contracting now. And what you see, what you had for a very brief period of time was economic policy that was intended to support the average man or the average family to allow for a decent, comfortable way of life. Of course, there are obligations that have to be fulfilled on the end of the the middle class person or the man or the family, you still can't be a complete fuck up. You have to show up to work. You have to work hard. You have to be productive and industrious and and sober enough. But if if you fulfill your end, then you will reap the benefits of that. It was set up that way. What we have now and what what has been going on, and and this I think is, sorry to say, but probably only getting worse, is a, a system that is designed to only appeal to a, a, a much smaller class of more ruthless, a, uh, maybe even amoral, striving, energetic, individualistic types who, who are able or better at manipulating and seeing advantages in a more particular way. Like it's not just about, yeah, go to work, you'll be taken care of, you'll be able to support people. Very yeah, no, few of whom are even in the Midwest. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's, as we all know, in the past 30 years or so, since NAFTA and even before, all of the, uh, you know, <clears throat> the profits have been accruing to the coasts, to the big mm-hmm. cities. Yeah. And, like, not to get too personal, but um, I, my grandparents are from upstate New York. My father is from there. And I remember going up like in the in the nineties for Christmas as a child and like okay, as a kid you don't really see the world the way adults do, but I'm pretty sure the communities seem pretty strong, relatively speaking, it seems. Yeah. And 
you know, now as an adult, when I go back, it's just, you know, it's like the community you describe in this, yeah. um, in the neighbor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's obvious that the opioid crisis has hit upstate mm -hmm. New York as it has hit many other areas of the country. Right. And it's obvious that, you know, the, the living wages in NAFTA and mm -hmm. all these, you know, in this deindustrialization, this shipping of industry to China has mm -hmm. left this region with, um, you know, like very few economic opportunities. I mean, you have in this novel, Jesse as um, a dishwasher and yeah. not even a dishwasher who like is like you know with other dishwasher but he's like his a machine gives him his dishes yeah and that i thought mm -hmm. that was a very nice touch but it's also mm -hmm. a touch that comes from reality this is how it is and you know many right. of these kind of like franchise kitchens mm -hmm. and that's just not a life that lends itself to creating a strong community which does not lend itself to um you know i'm going to be cute here to having good uh good neighbors no not not at all it, it, one of the it work is hard no matter what I, I no matter what you're doing you're going to be dealing with drudgery you're going to be dealing with repetition and the, it's going to take a toll on you physically and mentally but what offsets that or what should is that uh, embeddedness in a community and that sense of feeling socially useful and that also that sense of being loved or the, and that capacity to love others. A lot of that gets stripped away because the work, some of that only arises through permanence or through stability and stability of environments. And when you have population churn, when you have all of these populations moving very rapidly, you've got people, I don't know how many, I forget the statistic on this, but like Americans move a ridiculous number of times throughout their lives. It's like some, it's like seven or eight or something like that, or maybe even more. It, that's a lot of movement. And with that much movement, you can't really establish roots. You can't really get to know people. And if you don't know the people around you, then what you do matters less because a lot of the times what you do in itself is not really it can't be that fulfilling it's repetition you have to do the same thing day in and out but if you know you're providing for someone if you know that you are providing a service to people around you that you get to know on a more solid basis that can make all that easier to bear but if it's it's just another job that you work for a while and then you're going to get kicked out or you're going to have to move somewhere else and everything is churning and swirling around you. It's much more difficult to endure those conditions. Yeah. Well, part of what came to mind and what you said about the way, you know, society is now structured toward a more narcissistic striver atomized class of people uh, is interesting because uh, the, the sort of economic boom uh, of the Midwest that, we're that we were talking about earlier you might say, and I'm not an economist, but you might say that it was structured around the family and yes. more broadly, the community. That was what was right. incentivized. So there was mm -hmm. a meaning to the work. Right. Now, the kind of work that's more incentivized is this narcissistic um, email job, Uber yes. class. Right. If you're not, that's the thing. That That's exactly it. The, the economic policies at one time were geared towards supporting families and, and, individuals who didn't want to stand out in themselves but who wanted to be able to provide for others and 
provide stability. But now it, it, it's much more a matter of standing out and distinguishing yourself, often in ways which are probably antisocial or disruptive. Completely, yeah. Yeah, and obviously that leads to the erosion of community and that leads to, I mean, in, in some respects, and I, I'm sure this was intentional, as you're reading The Neighbor, you think, God, if Jesse had been born 50 years earlier, none of this would have happened. Right. He'd have a plant job, he'd make a good living, he yes. and Amber would have children. Mm -hmm. I don't know to what extent you're comfortable giving away spoilers. But... Uh, yeah, you, we can talk about whatever. I don't necessarily care all that much. Yeah, it's up to, up to you on that. Okay, so uh, so yeah, it's you know it, it goes awry and mm -hmm. you know very in a very moving and you know a tragic passage. Um, Amber overdoses, and yeah. um, you know, but this is the reason for this to some extent is that he lives next to a drug dealer, a drug right. dealer who she buys the drugs from. Yeah, just and, so happens to live there. It's accidental. Yeah. It's chaotic, but they're caught up in that. And yeah, that, I think of that all the time. I see people who, I mean, one of the things that happen when you, you have a society that reaches a certain level of complexity and, and, it's, and it's merit, meritocratic in some ways, and you raise the bar on intelligence and you, you, you set up a system where you can only prosper if you know how to game the system. If you're clever enough in a very superficial way to take advantage of certain opportunities but if you're not what happens is you end up you overvalue intelligence and you fail to see the dignity in people who simply are not as <clears throat> superficially clever and, and what you end up with though is the uh you deprive people of dignity you deprive because you shouldn't have to be that smart you shouldn't have to be you shouldn't have to scheme that hard right because like if, if someone comes into my shop when you work in a, a, a boutique coffee shop, you get the, the highest and the lowest. You know, you get people who are, you get yoga instructors and people on trust funds, but you also get uh, hobos. You, yeah. you get street people. And so, and, and you, you'll see people come in, see a guy who's, he's listening to a rap song on his phone with no headphones and he's eating a bag of cheat from a bag of Cheetos. <laughs> and I, I just, I look at that and I can't help but think that this is a person who, just doesn't have the the firmament. They just they don't have the capacity. Social acumen. Yeah, they they can't. They would have been fine. And they like they could have worked in a mill. They could have they could have been on a farm. There there were all these other forms of socially useful labor that they could have picked up and they could have been useful contributing members to. But now all the influences they're subjected to, they just can't handle it. They can't uh, discipline themselves in a, in a way that works for them. And so now they're, they're reduced to something that they wouldn't have been otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the lack of socially useful labor, I think that's important. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Because yeah. now it's like, there's such, there's such a hole in the center of that. And so what that leaves is uh, only people who are very creative and creative is a, it's an ambivalent term. It's not inherently a good thing. Like being, like, it's really not. And so what that leaves open is like people who are like, hmm, I don't actually have anything to contribute that's beneficial 
or that that improves like the health of, of people or that, that does anything substantial but i i can i can insinuate inadequacies in people i know how like i can i can game the system i i know how to manipulate you know th there's a certain intelligence in that it, it rewards a kind of manipulative intelligence and if you don't have it you're you're increasingly like without resources yeah yeah even on the, the highest levels, like I have a friend who's a, a banker, and his um, his job is to uh, enter into deals agreements, with, knowing that his counterparty, the bank's counterparty, will default and yes. then screw them with the penalties. Mm -hmm. And right. yeah, and this is just like you know, this is his job. This is what <laughs> yes. he does for a living. Right. And like the, he's winning when his you know deal partners are losing. Right. And to an extent, there's always that dynamic in a deal. You want to get like Matt and I come from the business side of the entertainment industry, and like you want to get the best deal. You want to get the you know. But like, there's something different when what you want is literally to cause your counterparty to fail. Yes. And yeah. To, yeah. And that's yeah. just like so much of the financial crisis so much of mm -hmm. you know what we've seen involves yeah. that type of dynamic where you you're trying to screw the other person yes it, right you have it's it, it's rapacity it is uh, really ramped up and yeah i, I don't think I, I don't think that is conducive to healthy relationships i, I think that that only reinforces that kind of atomized striving and people double down on the strategies for figuring out ways to maximize their own gains and profits. Uh, you see it even in, uh, I don't know, we're, we're all probably a little bit red pill or like manosphere adjacent <laughs> too. And, and the, and the, the way that you know, like the, 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 the fucking advice industry of like, basically inculcating insecurity into you to the point where you feel like you can't do anything and you have to pay someone to give you basic life advice. <laughs> like oh, you don't yeah. know how to, you don't know how to meet women. You're a loser. You don't have money. You're all alone. Buy my course. Oh, <laughs> I'll teach, <laughs> I'll teach no. you how to, but that's that, all of their, they, they have no product. They have no expertise apart from appearing as an expert in something. Right. I mean, we did our second podcast on the old blog Chateau Hartiste. If you, I mean, if you, whether or not you're familiar with that. I, I am. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> uh, yeah. So that was, you know, there's interesting stuff. That was a free blog. That was just a guy, you know, a blogger writing and had yeah. some interesting mm -hmm. takes. But I, so, you know, some of that stuff is interesting, but I do, I pretty much detest, uh, you know, the grifter, shall yeah. we say. Um it's uh, it's part of part and parcel of, of what we're talking about, which is yes. that kind of taking advantage of people. And I mean, the world. You know, I live in California. Obviously, it's not just a California issue. It's it's everywhere. You can find all, all the scams online, the mm -hmm. overt scams, and even yeah. the more subtle ways people have have of getting you to fork money over. Yeah. Um, it's just such a kind of disgusting um, industry of, of people trying to figure out uh ways to you know get you to buy into them yeah like, I, I need this and and um, it's always you, you'll notice that it seems that no matter what it's always it has to move in the direction of individualizing you to a pathological yeah. degree it's separating you from it's why is it so often like 
you, you need to break up with your girlfriend. You, you're, your wife's a bitch. You know, you don't really like, you're a submissive, you're a beta male. So you need to change your life, but I'm going to show you how to do it. You got to pay me to do it. It pretty much always operates through severing of ties. And, and we see that on our end of things, but it happens over in the, the liberal sphere as well. It's, it's a little bit more overtly political with, oh, you, you got to cut out your family if they voted for Trump or something. But it's just so much advice. Really, it homes in way too much on individual preference. And, and it, it only furthers yeah. social disintegration. It's all about, well, I d not all of my own individual needs are getting met. So who can I cut out of my life? How can I re recreate myself? in a way that is that allows for greater flourishing but you're you're actually isolating yourself and you're uh you're paying people you're allowing people to profit off of that isolation and it would well, never happen in a healthier society none of this would a, be necessary yeah in a healthier society <laughs> all of these men in these like how to get a girlfriend yeah. boot camps would have girlfriends that's yes we would just live in a society where, you know, people went to work and had good jobs and right. felt, you know, good forming families and, yeah. you know, weren't like reading blogs about like, uh, well, how do I become the ultra ultimate alpha male? And like the women yeah. reading blogs, like, how do you identify whether your boyfriend is a secret loser? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, totally. And like the self-love thing too. Like that, I think about that quite a bit, like the prevalence of that discourse of how you know, we think that we've made this advance uh, where you, you need to love yourself. How can you love someone else uh, if you don't love yourself? But oh, I, yes. I think it's, it's completely ass backwards. Like you actually, only you can only love yourself if you are capable of loving other people and you need other people to love you too like you can't just sit in a fortress and do mantras and meditate i don't know i, I don't really yeah subscribe no, to that stuff no i, I hear you yeah and all of this is to say you know we talked earlier and you know we're getting into a topic which could be you know the the stuff of a multi-volume work of the of, of how society came to be the way it is and the yeah. ultimate manifesto. We're getting yeah, yeah, deep, well, I, but I guess I, but, there's a book in there somewhere. But oh, I'm sure, maybe many, but um, no, the that it's not. Yeah, we talked about like economic policies, um, you know, favoring the family and favoring the middle class versus economic policies that now don't. But it's not just economic policies; it's also this social revolution that's happened yeah, basically right. since the 60s which is sure. yeah, that's the yeah. you know it's cultural wisdom, messaging yeah yeah and it has to do with yeah atomization and, and right individualism and how yeah. do we think we're way out of this i don't know but <laughs> yeah. yeah i i don't have i don't have answers uh, <laughs> i don't have anything prescriptive really but uh I, I do notice certain trends and I, I don't like where things are going. And I, I guess what I'm very sensitive to is the way that attempts to ameliorate some of the negative conditions or the damage that has been done only exacerbates it. Like I said, like, and, and the perfect example is like self-love discourse. Like, so what, what this is intended to do is to make you, is to protect you from the ravages of other people's decisions and other people's selfishness and the getting into getting in and out of relationships. But I think that uh, subscribing to this way of life or philosophy, identifying with it too strongly only intensifies the problem. It's, it's more Definitely. of a symptom rather. It's, it's not the solution. The, the solution to getting hurt and not being able to trust people 
is not uh, armoring yourself to the extent that no one can hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. I mean, to, to draw from your book what uh, the solution seems to have been for Jesse, uh, in, in, in the, in, you know, interestingly, it's not a solution, really. He just finds another job. but fine but but that in and of itself is kind of the solution there is no solution right the solution is you just got to keep working right it's and and that's going almost back to on the road uh, i think there was a point i wanted to make on how that book was written in a time where there was this perception of mass culture and conformity to one standardized way of life and so the road represented an escape from that there, there were these outcasts who didn't want to fit into yeah. working nine to five, supporting a family, going to work, consuming. They hit the road. They fucked around a lot. But at this point, now reaching this later stage of deindustrialization, one of the points I wanted to make is that, in contrast, the road is no longer a, an escape. The road leads back to where you were. Because... <laughs> It's, you're going to find the same problems everywhere. Like globalization, in a way, if it, if it supposedly offers, offers opportunity everywhere, it also it puts up roadblocks everywhere. The same problems will meet you wherever you go. So you, like, yeah. if you leave home, what you'll find are the same issues. So yeah. there is no escape. And that sounds incredibly bleak. But there is there's a way of turning that around too, which is that you actually don't need to you don't need to worry about escaping either. Yeah, yeah. You, there, you have to find some other turn. To, turn I'm just speaking. This is a abstract <laughs> point. I don't know what I've even been saying here, but you have to turn to something else. Besides, you know, it's not. Yeah. Um, there it's is something a, liberating about that. You, yeah, you, you can you can kiss your fear of missing out goodbye because yeah. you're not. <laughs> You're really not missing out. This is all we've got, you know? Yeah, right. Making a podcast on Zoom, like, this Mm -hmm. is uh, about (laughs) as good as it gets. (laughs) Yeah. You can hit the road, but yeah, you're going to have to get a job again, and you're going to have to enter into relationships. And unfortunately, the neoliberal program is, it's up to you. Like, whether a relationship succeeds or fails now, and for better and worse, I think mostly for the worse, but it's going to come down to the decisions you make because no one, there is no community. There is no social support structure that will hold you in place. Absolutely. People are not, if you keep fucking up and if you can't, if you can't tell yourself internally that, no, I need to maintain this bond. Nobody is going to do it for you. Yeah. And, and I mostly consider that a negative. I mean, I'm sure you could argue the other way around and yeah, of course, like, throughout history, people have been, under these insane obligations and have been forced to do all kinds of things they didn't want to do and probably should have never been made to do. But the problem that we face now on the total opposite end is even if you have something good, you can fuck it up all on your own and no one's going to stop you. Oh yeah. No, it's uh, yeah, there's no checks and balances. There's no community of people to, I mean, some people do have that and good for them, but I'm a some lot of here us. and there, but yeah, yeah. speaking generally. <laughs> Yeah, there's no broader community to enforce the norms of, you know, frankly, getting married and having children. Right. And that is something that, like, our, I mean, I I think you're probably a millennial as well, Caleb. Uh, I think we span the gamut here. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Matt is a younger millennial. I'm a middle. 
and uh, our generation is just uh, so many are going to, you know, frankly die childless. Yes, and right. That's you know, it's very sad because mm -hmm. like you know, I as my parents are getting older now, it really like dawns upon me. Well, like it's very it's very good that I'm there because if I yeah. weren't, God, who would take care of them? No one. They'd be at, you know, all, and that's, that's what's going to happen to many of our peers. Yeah. Uh, frankly, frankly to me, if I don't get working. <laughs> no, I, and, and, me too. And, and one thing that I noticed <laughs> is like one thing that to me seems uh, characteristic of the millennials or maybe just people in general now is that they, on the surface, are highly critical and judgmental of other people's choices. But underneath that, there, there is a very deep apathy. No one actually gives a shit what you do when you sure like on the internet we all want to make incendiary comments and we all want to draw attention to ourselves by pointing out flaws in other people but really no one fucking cares what you do so like whether or not yeah. you have children whether or not you get married whether or not you fuck up the the love of your life no one fucking cares no one's gonna stop no one's gonna intervene no one's gonna prevent you from fucking Jesus. up your life <laughs> that's so you you need to have your head on straight when it comes to things like that because seriously i you could tell one way or the other you could say i i swear like the average person like your acquaintances people that you know you could tell them on one end i'm getting married uh in two months or i'm getting divorced it's they're shrugging their shoulders either way oh geez it, i mean it, i think you're right <laughs> It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. No, because, um, you know, uh, marriage and children is one of the things they're talking about here. A lot of things in life that involve some degree of responsibility and taking on responsibility. And crucially, I think, limiting your horizons, yes. limiting possibilities. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. right. um, you hear this kind of dialogue about how millennials, you know, by their own fault or simply by the way the society they are brought up in, there's this fear of cutting out possibilities. Yes. Right. And um, basically, uh, human beings are such that um, the fear of entering into that responsibility and cutting off those all those other possibilities, mm -hmm. um, the, the, there's a human beings are such that we, we're afraid of that. So mm -hmm. what a good functioning society and community has is, um, in, you know, sometimes it's just raw incentives. Maybe it's even economic incentives and also maybe even more importantly, it's it's a social traditions and social wisdom passed down so it's like well you know you should do this you should right. get married you should mm -hmm. build a family you should mm -hmm. do this and that or the other thing you should build a career you know it's not even just about marriage and children um a, a good functioning community has within it a, a sort of breadcrumb trail for people to follow into flourishing but what we do not have you know in society as it is now um yeah it's just apathy Yes. So it's not it's not enough. No no one's going to say don't. I mean, you know, there's a there's a certain contingent within the culture that says don't get married, don't have kids because it's bad for mm -hmm. the environment. Mm -hmm. You know, screw that. But even yeah. without that, just the mere the, the lack of positive feedback um is enough to create yeah. the atomization. Right. And and the the judgment that people still feel and that people talk about a lot is it's it's all discursive. It is no deeper than that. It's a lot of chatter, but what I sure like you can always find a judgmental asshole on the internet who will judge you for your choices and tell you that you're doing the wrong thing. 
But what I'm talking about is the fact that there are no actual like organic pillars around you that are going to make sure that you do the right thing or not. Yeah, no, no, this yeah. resonates with me a lot. I mean, I'll get personal too. Uh, some of this is, you know, somewhat doxable info, but I don't really care that much about about that. And I'm, you know, I'm more interested in just having an honest conversation. Like, I, you know, I I grew up on the East Coast. I was born in um, Syracuse, New York, which kind of, as Dan was saying, you know, a little bit of that Rust Belt feel. And, you know, I, well, I won't tell my whole life story or anything, but, you know, basically I, I moved to the West Coast. I live in LA now after college, um, which I, I don't regret that move. But it puts me in this interesting position where I, I moved away from my, you know, I'm just, I have a great relationship with my family. It's not, it's not like I was running away or anything, but I moved away from my family, from the people I knew to kind of explore something new out on the West Coast. And yeah, now I'm in this position in life where I have laid down roots where I am now, but it's like in the back of my head, I know like I could just, there's not, there's like not that support system there. Like I can move and I don't want to think that way. And I'm Mm -hmm. not saying I do, and I'm not cheapening, you know, the life that I've built for myself here, but it's, it's the weird thing. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. 27 and it's like, I'm entering my kind of later twenties and it becomes this weird thing where it's like this, this, um, anxiety of freedom almost to put it, you know, as like a Kierkegaard might, um, where it's (laughs) like, I could fucking, drive away tomorrow yes and go off and try and start a life in some other state mm-hmm. um and i i have that and i think as a guy too you're often thinking this kind of thing you know as men <laughs> there's always this drive to you know find out what else is out there um, but i also think what you said earlier is right and that all roads kind of lead to the same place mm-hmm. um so i say yes. that not to um not to say anything bad about my life because i'm basically mm-hmm. happy but like nevertheless it's, I, I I'm often kind of think about the peculiarity of this historical circumstances circumstances yes. of my life that have led me to this place where it's like I could fucking do anything I want and you I could. don't like that. Right. No, th- there are <laughs> downsides to that. And yeah. and I think only the benefits have been touted. I think that that's what's highlighted is that you should be free to do whatever you want at all times. Okay. There are certain upsides to that, but it's not all good. And in my own life, I, I'm a 35-year-old man. I am, according to the census, single, as in I'm not married. I have no children. I never, I'm telling you, not in any circumstance, I am never asked if I'm going to get married. I just, there's no, from my family, from friends, no one expects it. And maybe, you could, maybe that is... I'm sure that's not everyone's experience. I'm sure depending on, you know, certain places where you grow up, maybe there's still some of that pressure. Maybe if you're from, if you have more of a religious background, I'm sure that still happens. But a lot of people would like to construe that as a purely positive thing. Like, oh, you're free. No one expects you to do anything. But I'm telling you, it's a little unsettling. Just to, because now I'm like, yeah. like what, what, how am I actually viewed by society? Like, what do people actually think of me? Am I just an adult child because no one thinks no one just assumes yeah he's going to take on greater responsibility he's going to be responsible for bringing up another generation no he's just a consumer he just does what he wants no one thinks he's going to do it's not exactly an inspiring condition yeah no it's like that lack of pressure is bad for you yes (laughs) for the people who you know um 
already, you know, benefit from you being here, the people right. that you would take care of, the people, mm -hmm. you know, like it, it would be nice, I'm sure, from those perspectives for you to have a wife and kids. But, you know, essentially you can still fulfill your role. You can still right. do what you're supposed to do. But mm -hmm. the pressure to form a family, that's for you. That's yeah. for you to get your act together. So <laughs> you do the, not you know, not you personally, but all of us. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm in the same situation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, you know, we missed out on that pressure living <laughs> right. in a kind of post-industrial, tinderized mm -hmm. society. Yeah, and that's the thing. is, And, and uh, some people still made that choice, of course. Like, there are still people who form families early on. I think my assumption is that uh, the more religiously steeped your background, the more likely that is. But mm -hmm. some of it is even economic. Like, marriage is becoming a status marker, too. Yeah, it's expensive. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> even, you know, just the, the bare trappings of it. Like, mm -hmm. I have a friend who got married in, well, okay, he flew to Vegas to get married, but it wasn't, you know, it was just him and his wife and family. But, I mean, you know, just that in and of itself, the ceremony, you know, got to get a ring. It's, you know... Mm -hmm. It's expensive. Right. Yeah. Uh, two things that I wanted to be conspicuously absent in the, the novel and in, in The Neighbor were religion and family. And especially the family one, I think, is more obvious because there's, there's really no connection to parents, brothers, sisters. That's all supposed to be completely vague, nebulous. It's the condition is so atomized. And Jesse has Amber, but and they have each other, but the two of them are not enough, not in those conditions. So, of course, they fall apart. But the other thing is that uh, oftentimes there's this association with lower class and religion. Uneducated people, ignorant people are more religious. And maybe the sociologically that bears out in a way. But I think what I've even seen, especially in urban underclasses is that there, there's an absence of religion there too these are not like pious simple people like there there's a serious lack of religious faith there too oh yeah like there's pretty much no mention of there, people do not attend church they do not even attempt to adhere to religious precepts yeah, no, I, I've noticed the same thing. I think there is something, maybe in generations past, um, some, something to the socio, and definitely like globally, you know, sociologically, um, less sort of successful or intelligent, whatever people are yeah. going to cleave, uh, it sounds negative, you know, cleave to religion more. But I've noticed that too in, in kind of like there's an increasing, you know, lack of religion uh, amongst the kind of lower classes for lack of a better term or, or or the religion that is there is not what it once was i mean there's obviously we talked about grifters earlier there's plenty of that that goes on too it's kind of like bs you know not not um not like traditionalist religion but rather like individualistic you know religion where, where the, the incentive is you know basically to bring money in um, yeah there's a cheapening to it, as, as I guess mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. I think in, in generations past, I mean, probably still now, you know, there is a great religiousness among, you know, the kind of the common man. Mm -hmm. But I think even that, very sadly, is um, cheapening. 
yeah. from my perspective. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to show that in the book too. And maybe it's it's going a little farther down the line. Maybe it's not even necessarily a, a representative picture of where we are right now, but of where we're going or where you can end up. Because if you if you have this class of people who no longer has social or economic opportunity and you also deprive them of religious faith and social meaning, then all they really have left are addictions and yeah. self-destructive cycles. Or at least the family-sized Funyuns and 90-day fiancé. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No, but that too, though, as you said earlier, that that is, you know, it, it's not as bad as um, opioids, but it's mm -hmm. it's like... Yeah, it's okay, on the spectrum. Yeah. yeah, it's on the spectrum, exactly. And then when tragedy inevitably strikes in those type of circumstances, that's when you most need God. That's yes. when you most need belief mm -hmm. and faith. And right. so that's one of the reasons why that passage where when Amber overdoses is just so st stirring, so striking, mm -hmm. because like you're in Jesse's head and you know that like now that she's dead, he has nothing. That's right. He, like he doesn't have his mm -hmm. faith. He doesn't mm -hmm. have, you know, belief in anything else. The right. only thing that he cared about is just gone. And right. so that was that was a very um powerful passage, I must say. Yeah, it, it's supposed to be about as stark as can possibly be. Right, because there is no other support. Nothing there's no comfort anywhere else. They were all they had. She was all he had. And now that's gone. And I wanted, and part of why, there, there's a one chapter that I wrote where I really did try in a very sensitive and sincere way to paint a romantic picture of two people getting to know each other and falling in love with each other. And that, I had to do that to provide that contrast with the deprivation, oh, yeah. with works. the loss that occurs it's, later. Yeah. Because it's not all, it, there are moments of beauty, even in a life that squalid and sordid. That, that, that's the, the reason it hurts so much, the loss hurts so much, is because there were glimpses, there were moments of transcendence or evolution out of that. Yeah, I mean, crucially, before they move next to the drug dealer, before they move next right. to Ace. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the, if you live in that type of community, I mean, I think there's a sense in the novel that eventually, even though Jesse and Jesse throughout the novel is always trying to do the right thing, always trying to like clean up the counters or make the right decisions, is trying to take them out for ice cream instead of staying in and smoking weed. But yeah. regardless, it'll catch up with you just yeah. because like it can't not when you live next to a drug dealer, when you're like, you know, working a, a deadening job, it's just mm -hmm. like... You know, the, everything was stacked against them. Oh yeah, yeah. There's no countervailing influence whatsoever. Yeah, it, and and there are impulses against it coming from the individual, but they're not going to be strong enough. Yeah, and you could see how generations prior those impulses in Jesse are are good. Right. And like, there's <laughs> there's no way Jesse would have you know, Ben murderer. <laughs> he, uh, yes. you know, he would have, mm -hmm. you know, worked a, a job and had a family and, and mm -hmm. everything, but the circumstances in some respects make the man. And absolutely. That's what happened. Um, 
Well, I, maybe that's a good note to just transition on and talk about what uh, what is the next step for you right now? Are you working on any uh, anything else? Yeah, I right now I'm semi-consistently always working on nonfiction. I have been playing with the idea of doing a nonfiction collection. Yes. I'm not sure how well that works because I always release that stuff online and it's freely available. So I don't know if that's strange or economically silly to well put out a product that is freely available. <laughs> I want to say I hadn't checked out your blog before like this morning, but I, I, I checked it out this morning and um, yeah, it's really good stuff. I, I like it a lot. Uh, I, I like, uh, I, I, it's not, I don't want to compare you to delicious tacos cause it's really not, but I, you know, there's, well, you're writing nonfiction, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, I, I do think it could be described as, and I don't even like this word very much, but I notice it kicking around a lot. It could be described as auto fiction. I mean, yes. you're writing, you're mm -hmm. not writing philosophy essays. You're no. writing very honestly and very entertainingly. I, again, I, my, you know, relationship with reading your blog is like, I read like one piece and a little yeah. bit of a couple others, but I, mm -hmm. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I think mm -hmm. I, I read the one you posted like four days ago, I think. Yeah, I um, talk about I, I saw about Eternal Cormac Sun. McCarthy. Okay, yeah, maybe that was yeah. That's one back, I think. There's one more. Yeah, one back. There's one yeah. more recent. Mm -hmm. That was the, I saw the Cormac McCarthy thing. And I was like, mm -hmm. anyway, I just want to say it's good stuff and that people should check it out. And um, you know, I'm in a similar position. I wrote a debut novel that came out last year, and I'm working on you know whatever I publish next. I'm thinking of doing some combination of sort of mm -hmm. nonfiction slash auto fiction yeah. and as well as like some short stories. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in a similar position. I get what you're saying where there's a temptation. You want to post that stuff kind of for free because you want to bring in more readers. I, yeah. I think there's probably a balance to be found where you, you make sure you publish some original material that you can only get in the mm -hmm. book. Right. Maybe you, know, you can always go back and sort of put like entire pieces or like halves of pieces behind yeah a lock i think there's something to be to be done there um, yeah because the work is definitely good yeah. well I, and I, I play a game with myself a little bit when it comes to nonfiction, and I'm, I'm aware of it although it does help i tell myself when it comes to the blog when it comes to the nonfiction, i tell myself that this isn't your real work this is something to put out for free to establish a link to yourself that anyone can check out with no investment. It's you click, you read. I'm, I'm not going to put out trash, but also I'm not necessarily, it's, it's not published. It's not, there's no physical copy. I, I'm not going to put quite the same work. I'm not going to put quite the same attention or energy or focus into it. But at the same time, I'm also not, I'm not just going to put out total garbage. I'm still going to, there's going to be a minimum standard there. So I play a little bit of a game myself where I say, ah, this, this is cool, but it's not really what I'm doing. But what the interesting thing that I've found is that for as, as unpopular as like little popularity as I have, a lot of people who have, have read the fiction stuff, read the short stories, read the novel. And as much as they like that, like they really enjoy the nonfiction stuff. And I've been encouraged to publish it. Too. Yeah, I saw that. I was going through your, your Twitter feed and you, you posted a poll, like, which should I publish next, fiction mm -hmm. or nonfiction? And I think nonfiction went out. And you had a couple comments yeah. that were like, nonfiction. Yeah. You know, 
Um, that could get into a whole other discussion. I think that, I think that a lot of people are mo- almost more interested in nonfiction today than fiction, which is a little sad. But in some ways, yeah, and and maybe that would be bowing to even on the in the most reduced form, like a certain market pressure in a way. But I think I get it too. I think there there is something if you're honest, you you're relatable, right? And and not even based on the particulars of your life, but just the fact that you are a real voice. I think people identify with that, that they enjoy that. Even if it's not, oh, I don't know what it's like to live your exact life or I wouldn't make the choices you make. They wanna hear a real voice. They don't wanna, it, it's just easy. You know when someone is trying to placate a, a large amorphous group. And so when yeah, you- I mean, in, <laughs> in the times as atomized as they are, I think there's a real hunger to relate to people yeah, on a right. deep level. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's one of the things that makes Delicious Tacos is writing um, so popular and so good yeah, right. is like he writes about stuff. And again, I think autofiction is the word because not to get too pomoy about this because I hate that shit, but like the the binary between fiction and nonfiction can yeah. disappear a little bit when yeah. you're writing just mm-hmm. honestly. You know, the best fiction right. is a little bit autobiographical the best autobiography is a little bit fictional or a little bit stylized at least 100 so i i think that there's a real hunger for that because there is such a premium on you know um you know i i like cormac mccarthy and i like uh you know even some genre stuff i like to be swept away by a story but i i think Mm -hmm. first and foremost when i'm reading i do want to find that nourishment of human connection right and i think that yeah yeah no the that's why I am compelled to maybe focus a little bit more on the nonfiction and even like friends. And this gets into a delicate thing. The most, the most recent piece I wrote, it's, uh, it's about a few different things. I pretty much, my shtick, if there is one, or my, my program is to pretty much always zoom in and zoom out. Like I, I focus in on concrete details of my particular life and then I zoom way out and look at broad trends and I try to tie them together in some way. Yeah. And I think that's very relatable. I think it's entertaining in a way. And I'm, I'm pretty gritty and I'd like to think funny at times. Like Sometimes I think a lot of what is construed as bleak or depressing for me is just funny. Like that's yeah. the way I see things is like, I'm just trying to be funny. And then the, the major interpretation is like, man, that was fucking sad. That was, <laughs> but like, well, that was just my way of making something humorous, like exaggerating something or drawing attention to a certain detail. But yeah, I, I think that, that is, uh, that, that's in a way very easy to digest. And especially with the way our attention spans work, you've got shorter pieces, you've got thousand word pieces, where you're, you're talking about seeing a movie and walking through uh, a, like a muddy sidewalk, but then also like, yeah, relationships breaking apart on a mass scale and, so, and finding a way to condense all that material into like, 1,200 words, 1,500 words. There's something that's very appealing about that. And it, it's fun to do too. And like, you don't have to invest so much. It's not like, okay, I've got a 500 page novel about all of these really intricate uh, yeah. plots and well, Daco says a, a great line and I'm not sure exactly which podcast this was on Matt's heard it, you've probably heard it too someone asks him how do you get famous for being a novelist and he said uh, by getting famous for doing something else Yeah, and <laughs> right. um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so, like, yeah, you know, it's in this attention economy, you need mm-hmm. a blog. Right. You need mm-hmm. you need a podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> you need mm-hmm. uh, you need to get famous somehow, and right. then people will be like, "Oh, I know this person. Yeah, I'm I follow him. Yeah, let yeah. me see what he wrote. He's an interesting voice. He's he has interesting experiences. He's funny. Yeah. He's relatable. Yeah, what else is he doing? Right. You can't just drop a six hundred page novel from you know the clouds of heaven onto the earth and like people approach it like the I don't know, the monkeys and like Planet of the Apes with the yeah, monolith yeah. or something. Like no one cares. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially no, not a... if you're outside the publishing industry. Yeah. Like right. if you're, you know, your Simon Schuster publishes your work and, you know, they yeah. get you on NPR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like people are going to notice. Maybe not mm-hmm. people on our side of Twitter. Because right. Because we don't read that junk. But <laughs> yeah. other, other people. Other people will. Notice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but if you, you know, if you're your own publicist, you gotta publicize yourself, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's going back a little bit. The delicious tacos reference is one thing. I am surprised. Maybe it's a good thing, but I'm surprised that doesn't come up more often because it is a. It's like an open secret, at least for me, that he is a major influence, and I don't necessarily. I don't want to tout it too much but it, it's something i almost fear at times where i think what i'm doing is going to be seen as derivative and not that we don't really have in some ways we're a little too similar and in other ways we're very very different but uh even sometimes like stylistically or with the voice like i have been very influenced by that i started reading him when he first started his blog i was 25 oh damn wow. i was tw- i was 25 yeah. he was 35 you're an and it's ten BTOG. years later. It, it's ten years later, and it's a. I don't know. It's played out about as you would expect, probably. But I, I, I've made comments on there before, and there's that little part of me that is hoping that some at some point he will promote what I'm oh, doing. Yeah. You know, have you uh, interacted with him in the past? A little bit. Yeah, I sent him yeah. an email. He was a very comp. I. I sent him a link to the review I wrote of his book and he was very complimentary. Like he seems like a gracious guy. He and is. I, and I would never, yeah. my attitude towards this sort of thing is I would never expect anybody to go out of their way to do anything for me like that. Because also I don't really do that much for people. I, I don't, I mean, I, I maybe would in certain circumstances, but I guess I just don't have that general attitude of like, who needs help? Can I help them? Yeah. Who's going to help me? No, I'm 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 aloof. I'm I'm kind of selfish. I'm distracted easily. But I still have a little bit of that fantasy of like, maybe at some point he'll notice what I'm doing, and he'll promote it a little bit. Not in some sustained way, but even just like a mention or something. Yeah. It'd be a nice thing. We're we're trying to get tacos on the podcast now, and yeah, no, I don't take it. You know, he he he's definitely a busy guy, but at yeah. some point, and um. You know, we'll bring you up when he comes on. Like, it's good to you know keep a uh, keep keep the keep the connections going, right? And I think it's really cool that you. I mean, I, I, if I were, I, I don't know, maybe maybe my sense of this is wrong, and I'm younger, or whatever. But the fact that you've been reading his blog for so long is pretty striking because he got a lot more sort of well known, like oh yeah, two two three years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. He got way more popular, but he has been so consistent, though, is the thing, and. He was so enjoyable to read he, way back. Well, the thing, one of the things I liked about him so much 
Is it? Yeah, he was adjacent to Manosphere, Red Pill, that kind of like the advice industry material. And, and even a lot of the political stuff, like even around the time, because Hartiste was writing at the Chateau, and there was a shift from, <laughs> he, he always did game, but you know, at some point, I don't know when this was exactly, there was a shift from game dominant to politics. And it right. started talking about much more dissident, much more, well, it, the game stuff's unacceptable too, also to mainstream society, but he went way farther with- Hartiste, right? Yeah, Hartiste. Oh like, yeah, he's with, with, crazy. <laughs> yeah, but what I liked about Delicious Tacos is that he he always stayed true to his voice. Like he didn't join yeah. a movement. It was never, like he was friendly just by virtue of being maybe associated or having some overlap on a Venn diagram. But it, it was never about taking sides. It was never about saying, yes, I'm a part of this movement. Now you have to agree with what I'm saying. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to moderate. I'm not going to police things. There's no ideological conformity. There was something just so human about what he was doing that, sure, of course, his sentiments and his outlook would be very offensive to some people. But that was never really the point. It was never. Right. It was he's never. A, he's a writer, right? He's a writer first and yeah. foremost, and that that's something that I always found very inspiring. And it's not that I wanted to copy exactly what he was saying, but I always took that to heart, and I always kept that in mind that you're going to say things that will offend people. You're going to take stances, but you have to do it from a, a very human place and and from something that's true for you, and that's going to some people who are very ideological and just need the repetition of mantras and slogans they're not going to like that but i don't know the way i look at things really is like i'm not a leftist i'm not a liberal i don't identify with any of that but i still even with that being said even though there are many of my views that would get me in a lot of trouble if the wrong people knew too much about it i still would hope that i could write things that would touch those people yeah. Like my like the point of me writing is not like how could I piss them off? How mm-hmm. can I like how can I own the libs or something? Like I would still hope that I could create art that would on some level resonate with them. Yeah. I don't want to cut anyone off. We no, I think are. Tacos does have some I mean I'm I'm not, I'm not like totally up to date on who who reads him or whatever, but yeah, there's a sense in which there's a sense I get the sense that there's people who read him who you yeah. don't read any of the other red pill stuff <laughs> right. at all, but they, mm-hmm. they see the value there. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And that's that's what I like, too, is like and it, when you reach that human level of relating to someone, I find that it's it's easier to disagree with them or easier to say, OK, on this area, I definitely don't follow you there. But I still know that you your heart's in the right place and, and I'm still going to support what you're doing. Yeah. Though our pot is named the new right. Our mission statement from the very beginning is to profile, you know, real art that is outside of the mainstream. Right. And, you know, that means, in in my opinion, and I think in Matt's opinion as well, art that is, you know, art first and foremost, and the political agenda kind of serves the art. Right. And that is like, that's from all sides. That's from, you know, art, good art should touch everyone in a non no homo (laughs) well i I mean i almost think that we live in a time where just attempting to do that places you on the right not in in some uh, strict way but just by association 
Yeah, and that, which that, is that, why we're the new right. Right. That's, that's, <laughs> where, I, that's where I find myself. And it, it isn't through hardline identification or adherence to a specific doctrine, but it's, it's, it's from merely wanting distance, enough distance and enough space to create something authentic and it's true to my actual experience. That's enough to almost get you labeled as a dissident or to place you in dissident Absolutely. territory. But yeah, I, I also, I don't want to cause confusion. I'm, I'm not a, a banner carrying kind of guy. I'm not a, a programmatic person like that. Yeah, neither am I. I, I don't find it. You know, I, I've been on sort of right wing Twitter for a number of years and I guess I've tried things on for size to an extent, but I, I'm at a point where it's like, no, carrying that banner does absolutely nothing to serve me. Um, no. Being honest and interacting with people does a lot to serve me. But, yeah, you know, and there's, yeah. maybe there's a That's place in the world rather where, to serve your art. Right, to serve, my, to serve my art, my creativity. I mean, there's a place in the world for banner holders and for ideologues yeah. and for thought leaders, sure. but I, it's not something that I'm that interested in. Yeah, yeah, I mean that. That's fair enough, probably. There, there is a place for that, but that's that's not who I am. Yeah, just one thing I want to say about this is a maybe it's a cringe sort of boomer or like Gen Xy sort of thing, but I'm reminded what what is uh, this quote? I don't know who said it. You know, the the, the people who first heard the Velvet Underground uh, were all inspired to start their own band. I think that Tacos yeah. has played that role mm -hmm. for a lot of us. And yeah. I can say again, I haven't read that much of your blog. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's 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 in that delicious tacos form yes. where, but content wise setting wise i think you're fine i don't think there's yeah. anything remotely derivative about it um and i think that it's a it's a powerful um it's a it's like a it's a it's a good good medium that's sort of yeah you know and tacos is open about what you know the way he writes is up you know you just sit down and you write about it your yeah. life as honest as you can i see that in your yeah. work uh it's something that i'm trying to write to and whether or not i ever a lot of it's stuff i just keep private mm -hmm. you know whether it's my you know day-to-day -day journaling but uh, to bring it back to bring a conversation back to like what the first topic we touched on which was like you know the habit of writing and the ritual mm -hmm. i mean there you're not going to have a fiction story to work on every day and right. uh, that's what i find the sort of what i yeah not to give him too much credit because it's not like he invented journaling but uh <laughs> but what, what could kind of be thought mm -hmm. of is almost like the delicious tacos form of just that yeah. kind of writing you have to be able to do that some days mm -hmm. I think. no that, that's true and, and that's it's almost a a relief or it's a it's a valve for escaping the pressure of thinking like i have to elaborate on this fictional world every day well i don't feel like it but i can always write about some bullshit that's going on in my personal life and, and it's so therapeutic and not to sound like a lib but you know it's so yeah. therapeutic yes. and pleasurable mm -hmm. to write about that stuff it is you can feel it right just melting off your chest if it's something mm -hmm. difficult um it's, yeah. it's pretty amazing yeah if you go far it keeps you... the mind limber yeah it does the, uh, the muscles you know that's right the, yeah the, the verbal intelligence operating at, at maximum capacity yeah, if, if you read more of the blog, you'll see I've, I've written about some... I'm a little shameless. I'm balls out, really, when it comes down to it. I mean, not in every piece, but if you look over time, I've written about some shit. I write under my own name. My image is out there. And that's a little bit of the... the that's like the uh, performance artist aspect of it as well, where I, at least according to my own perspective, have taken some risks. Like, 
in the in the last piece I wrote, part of one of the points I was making is that like if certain people read some of the shit that I've written, my life would be much more uncomfortable. But I'm on the internet and no one cares. Right. And it's it, kind of what you're saying earlier. No one actually cares. Yeah, right. So you so, start to but, realize more and more. But if the wrong person at the wrong time took a look at something, they could cause trouble for me. Right. If they wanted to. I write under my name. I've written about some really embarrassing things. I'm a little shameless when it comes to that, but I hope it's to bridge certain gaps. I, I do oh, no, do that it. was what drew me in. I, I think the line I was like, when I... I, 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 the, the first this thing you posted like a week ago uh, where you're writing about Cormac McCarthy's first novel and you're, the last sentence of your paragraph is like uh, you know I, I wrote a novel at the same age and it's better than Cormac McCarthy yeah. so like okay this guy you know whether or not that's true I, but like because yeah. I haven't read the Cormac McCarthy novel but like so being willing to say that and being mm-hmm. and I don't know is that your ultimate take maybe you could see both ways but that emotional truth of my fucking novel's better than this yes. I was like I can relate to this this is good I'm gonna yeah it's about yeah. working through that it's about uh, letting people see that uh, that raw uh, experience of like th- yes. this is what I actually go through this is part of how I feel at least at times and, and yeah to, to finish up I guess on like what's next you know I, I wanted I think I want to do a nonfiction collection. I'm most I'm working on a short story collection as well because I've written a lot of short stories and some of those are on the blog as well. Quite a few of them, but I have others that I'm finishing up and I've edited. I submitted a short story. Are you familiar with the the Passenger Prize? Oh yeah, oh, Passage Prize. Yeah, Passage Prize. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, no, we, uh, or we love H- it. Yeah, and zero HP. Yeah, I, I submitted a, a short story to that that I think. I think it's pretty good. Uh, the, most of the excerpts I've seen, I've, of course, I'm pretty egocentric with that. I usually, and you can't really tell what's going on with an excerpt, but I usually end up thinking like, ah, I think I'm better than that. Uh, but who knows? Uh, people have their own standards. I don't know exactly what he's looking for. But I would like to at least make like clear the bar on that and get. I don't expect to win, but it'd be nice to get some recognition. Like a yeah, nod. I saw. Yeah. I think I saw this morning that there there's talk that like the honorable mentions or even just uh, th- th- that somehow or other their other work is going to be an honorable mention out. would really be fantastic. I, I yeah. who I mean, who really re- knows? And you regardless can't... of whatever happens there, you wrote a really good novel. Like the neighbor. I mean, we Matt and I have spent like the past year reading lots of novels, and yeah. like this is really good. And I appreciate that. The uh, you, the writing when you say like similar stylistically to tacos i see a little bit of that but honestly this is all your own and yeah. like a lot of the turns of phrase and stuff is you know stuff i haven't really read before sure i mean and... it is homegrown and it, it's honed over time too it, it's it's both organic experience but it's a lot of uh, a lot of craft too and yeah I'm, I'm glad that it's it's hitting that way that that, that really makes me feel good I mean I, I would hope you know like I I want to it's nice to have a hobby I guess and to have <laughs> some way of occupying my time that isn't just watching television but it would also suck if I really sucked like if if nobody thought anything i was doing was any good so like it, it is it is nice like I, I think there is something to be said for getting positive feedback and even if it's like constructive criticism but uh it, it does help like who knows maybe i would just give up if everyone thought 
everything I did was terrible. I don't know that I can really be one of those people that says like, I would just always do whatever I wanted, no matter what happened. Yeah. Probably no, not. You, you do not have to worry about that because you got some really good lines in here and, you know, a really good story. Mm -hmm. I, I do appreciate You know, that. Uh, it seems like the good reviews keep rolling in on Amazon as well. Yeah. Great. And I've had, it's nice to get a mix. I've had people in my real life that have bought the book and they've reviewed it. It's good to hear from them on that. But the most satisfying thing is hearing from totally anonymous people because there's no connection there. There's no, well, even if there probably isn't really pressure, but I can always think that if I give a book to somebody that I know, maybe they feel a little bit pressured to be positive yeah. or, or even not just to be positive. Like maybe they really do like it, but just, pressure to like oh i need to read this but if it's somebody from who the fuck knows where it, it could be anywhere in the world who found it through whatever channel and still felt compelled to read it review it that's a, a very encouraging thing yeah yeah definitely well we sincerely... really is something for everyone in there because it's like my novel matt's novel i know that certain people reading it would be like oh i've I'm offended. I, yeah. uh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I think I need to stop reading this if I want to remain a member in good standing of society or whatever. Right. Yeah. But your novel, yeah, there's, you know, it's maybe I see why it's difficult to publish in the mainstream publishing industry, but it really is something that, you know, I think anyone could read and enjoy. Yeah. I, I was not trying to offend while at the same time not trying to placate or cash in on trends or sensitivities either. So on either end, wasn't trying to provoke or soothe. <laughs> I was just going to say, say I, um, I sincerely hope some people who listen to our podcast buy your book. Um, and we'll definitely put the link out there you know if we can help you get to a bigger audience that's yeah what we want to do yeah. sure yeah no I, that, that would be great and that's that's part of why i mean i enjoy these discussions anyway just for for their own sake it's it's fun but that would be a, a fantastic byproduct yeah just to repeat it it is the neighbor by caleb caudill and uh your blog is middleamericanlit.wordpress.com and Everyone should check it out. It's great writing. For sure. Thank you. I think that's uh, maybe a wrap, guys. Yeah, I think if... so, too. Yeah. I had one thing I was going to ask that doesn't have to be for the podcast, because it's totally off topic, but it's just something that I thought of this morning when I was reading your blog. Mm -hmm. um, and if it doesn't resonate, you can disregard it. I'm just, and we probably won't put it in this podcast, because it's not thematically on point. But um, you mentioned listening to Bury Your Dead, and I think it was some other band. Misery Signals. Mi yeah. Um, <laughs> I just was, I I had this in my back pocket to whip out if there was like a, a dead spell and we had another topic to move on to. Um, I used to listen to that. I don't know what you call it, metalcore? Or metalcore, like, hardcore. sure, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I used to listen to that a lot when I was a teenager, and like over this past year or so, have gotten back into it. And one of the things mm -hmm. I find kind of interesting about it is that like, so many of those bands are from the Midwest and yes, from like they are. second tier mm -hmm. um, Milwaukee, Chicago. Yep. Yeah. Right. Or even North if they're from like the Northeast, it's like some random city in Massachusetts. Yeah. Right. Or, it's like or, Podunk area. Yeah. And, yeah. 
Uh, um, Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've been getting back. I mean, just sincerely getting back to music. I think it's better than I'd given it credit after I sort of moved out of that phase. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just was kind of curious if like that resonated at all. Where like, th- there's something very midwestern mm-hmm. and like sort of old school. Not old, not old school is the wrong word, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, no, I. That stuff is always going to be. It's always going to have a place in my heart and. It, I'll go for long periods of time without listening to it, but I can always go back to it. And of course, it's formative, right? You you listen to it at, at a in a period of your adolescence when your emotions are especially intense, and you identify it with it in an especially vivid way. And, and those impressions, I think, they're indelible. They're they're with you forever, no matter what. So I can always go back to that. And and the, like the metal stuff too. I think I described it. I, somewhat self-deprecatingly or ironically like i'm a melancholic meathead so it's like these two tendencies of where like i think about things i get very pensive and wistful but also like i just have like this masculine aggression where like i want to kick i want to kick the shit out of someone that is um that's a really good point yeah um metalcore especially um even like post-hardcore and even some like better emo yeah uh, um especially compared to just like the floofy shit yeah rock and roll is dead Mm -hmm. like I go back to it. It's like this. This so perfectly captures um, a like it's it's like it's masculine music, but also mm-hmm. like with a sensitive side. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> it does. It's, it's good stuff. It, it yeah. marries those those sides of me where like half the time I I want to fight someone, and then the other half I want to cry. And <laughs> but they're both very real. Yeah, they are. And there's such a lack I find of that kind of math and masculinity in general, but even that oh, yeah. kind of like mm-hmm. just like white guy from the Midwest. Yeah, right. Mask. It used to be in the culture with yeah. music like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, going back to that music, I always find like um, that that nostalgia for the presence of that mm-hmm. as a, like an influencing force in culture. Well, I almost and, uh, think I mean, that I think it comes in your writing too, so that's why I brought it up. But yeah, I, I almost think <laughs> old school country used to express yeah. that, right? The, the fact oh, that like, I think so. I'm a yeah. hard ass, but actually I'm crying into my beer too, and you know, like this the bitch left me, and actually I'm torn up about it, but also I'm going to kick your ass if you look at me the wrong way. Right. That that used to be. I think you're right. Yeah, there is like, you know, when metalcore was popular, it was no one would have ever thought like there's something sort of analogous to country music yeah. going on here. But I mm-hmm. think like in hindsight, yeah, it reminds me of that. That's like, right. Yeah, in the rearview, yeah, you can see it especially. But that, that is that's hard to express, and I think that's hard for people to understand. Maybe for women or like men who are raised a certain way, how men can contain those seemingly contrary emotions or impulses like it but for me it's it's very strong and it, it's very it, it's powerful and sometimes i don't know how to reconcile things but yeah in, in writing too i that i hope to be doing my own version of it where i think so yeah i, I get yes i am extremely wistful i am very sad about certain things like my heart breaks very easily over seemingly minor incidents and events but also like i get i don't know i have a lot of rage and hatred and i want to hurt people too Mm -hmm. you want to process those emotions in a masculine way yeah right um Mm -hmm. yeah i think uh i think there is something really virile about that aesthetic um that i yeah i I like to try and bring it to to my writing as well Mm -hmm. um yeah it's interesting because like metal people metalcore gets kind of maligned or like people dismiss it but i think um no there's more you know, maybe it. we're 
yeah, there's a lot more to it, and hopefully other people, hopefully there'll be a, and this does happen with genres, like hopefully, you know, give it another few years and people will have a better card for it. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I was always partial to, I like some of the the more simplistic stuff, like some of the the really just simplistic beat down stuff. That can be fun, like party stuff, but I, I was always partial to the stuff that was a little more complex, the blended yeah. more of the intricate melodies, like the, sh the shimmering reflective guitar tones and phrasings yeah. with, yeah, those complex, like the polyrhythmic breakdowns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like um, Norma Jean's first album. Yeah, yeah, early Norma Jean is great. Yeah. Some of that stuff does get played out a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely, like, a little bit of that aesthetic got played out, but, mm -hmm. like, yeah. And there's a, wouldn't bring up Norma Jean, there's a whole other interesting element where there was that whole, like, Christian... Yeah, well, there's a lot of... Core scene, which yeah, I, yeah, there's a lot of overlap there, too, and especially, you know, in the Midwest, in Indiana, a lot of those bands were Christian. Like, especially Indianapolis had, like, a Christian metalcore scene. Yeah. I think it's like kind of fascinating the extent to which that existed and how those bands were not some niche thing where it was only Christian youth groups listening to, but like at Hot Topic, and yeah, like right. Devil Wears Prada mm -hmm. next to My Chemical Romance, yeah. like it's all mm -hmm. that the way that that seeped into the culture um, is like, I don't think it's like adequately appreciated. How yeah. sort of interesting that I think was. I think there is a cultural history that still needs to be written about yeah. quite a bit of that. And I've I've talked I have a friend who lives in Chicago who grew up in the same scene. And he's a free jazz drummer, but he he got his chops playing like metalcore, hardcore, a lot of that same stuff. And we've talked about how you have, somebody needs to sit down and really do like a comprehensive, exhaustive cultural history of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think it's kind of ignored for the reason we were talking about, which is that it's kind of like a flyover country phenomenon. Yeah. I think that's part of why it's, it's flyover not flyover. Really, it's like retrograde yeah. masculinity, but still with some of those maybe slightly more sensitive or feminine elements as well. It's difficult to categorize. It's difficult to place. But it, it, it says a lot about where a lot of people were at the time.